Hey everybody, Magnus here. You know, originally had a very different lineup of shows planned for this series of comics, but first of all, I just wasn't very interested in talking about those comics right now, and second, I thought this would be kind of a neat opportunity to check out the various and sundry Superman origin stories out there. You know, other podcasters talk all the time about how their long-laid plans suddenly change, just out of the blue. Until I became a podcaster myself, I didn't understand how that could even happen. But now I understand it only too well. Kryptonian biological makeup is enhanced by Earth's yellow sun. Dr. Doom wears body armor to conceal his own mangled form. Worst episode ever. Why? Who shot first? Yeah. Who gives a shit? It's what's called super nerd nitpicking over something that's not really that important. Welcome back to Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. I'm your host, Trentus Magnus, your always faithful, ever smiling, hopelessly romantic host. Now, as I said, I decided to use the run up to the release of Man of Steel on Blu ray to look back on other Superman origin stories. The genius title I thought up for this is Superman Begins. Now, I've got a pretty loose definition of what constitutes an or a, a Superman origin story. As will become evident, my sole criterion in this is that it must be a story where Clark becomes Superman. So, whether it's Superboy becoming Superman, a grown-up Clark becoming Superman and bypassing Superboy altogether, or whatever the fuck Jeff Johns attempted to do, I'm going to tackle it. So... I decided to stick with comics on this because there are a lot of other people out there who have tackled things like Lois and Clark and the movies and other things. And, and shit, I personally talked about Smallville in my first badass and unspeakably epic first show, so... Anyway. I'm also not going to talk about Superman number one. By which I mean the one published back in June of 1939, rather than that silly New 52 stuff. There are reasons for that. For one thing, I've never been crazy about Joe Schuster's art. I'm just waiting until you guys finish sending me hate mail, which, by the way, may be directed to TrentusMagnus at gmail.com And by the way, you spell that T-R-E-N-T-U-S M-A-G-N-U-S at gmail.com Okay, all done now? Good. Now, another reason I won't deal with Superman number one is Odds are good that several zillion other podcasts have probably done it already. Oddly enough, that isn't going to stop me from talking about other comics that a lot of other podcasts have covered, but I never said I wasn't a hypocrite. Because I am a hypocrite. I just said I hate hypocrites, and you know me, I'm not a hypocrite. But the main reason I won't talk about Superman number one is because, honestly... There's just really not much there in terms of mythos. Clark just kind of becomes Superman. It's no more complicated than that. We're not really told much of why he becomes Superman, because that's just not what comics were like back then. The main reason I'm doing all this, apart from the fact that Man of Steel is coming soon on Blu-ray, the main reason is because I love Superman. He's my absolute favorite character in all of fiction. You see, 
Batman's origin could have been the beginning of the world's most dangerous supervillain, or maybe yet another millionaire dilettante. The Flash's origin, whether it's Jay, Barry, or Wally, is a study in dumb luck. Being in the right place at the right time. But there's something so mythical, wondrous, and majestic about Superman's origin story. Because Superman's origin is the stuff tyrants and galactic despots are made of. But it's not in Superman's case. Through a combination of his innate sense of good, coupled with Jonathan and Martha Kent steering Clark in all the right directions, instead it's the story of an alien who becomes the best among us. To draw another comparison to Batman, I fully realize what Smallville was originally intended to be. Now, the movie division ended up pulling rank, but that was supposed to be a, sh a, a TV show about Bruce Wayne training to become Batman. But I'll be honest, I don't think you could have sustained a series about Bruce training to become Batman for ten seasons. I, in fact, I struggle to think of ways to get it to even five seasons. I'm sure Batman has a pretty interesting history, but sooner or later, sooner, I think, audiences would want Bruce to have a nice warm glass of shut the fuck up already. There are only so many times you can hear some multi-billionaire pretty boy who bangs supermodels whine and complain about his misfortunes. But Superman's backstory was always richer and had more potential. You could do a show where Clark learns how to be Superman without too much trouble because of... Because of the fact that I, I... And maybe this is just the best way to put it. Because of the fact that he has to overcome greater mental barriers to do so than Bruce does. Again, that email address for your hate mail is trentusmagnus at gmail.com And again, you spell it T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S at gmail.com But, just know in advance that I'm right, you're wrong, and you won't change every, anyone's mind. Because deep down inside, you know I'm telling you the truth. Anyway, I love Superman. I love his origin. And I love his roots in small-town America. That's where I was born and spent a considerable amount of my childhood. Clark's school teachers were my school teachers. His friends were my friends. His neighborhood, at least at varying times in his history, that was my neighborhood and all that. But beyond just identifying with Clark, I've always been captivated by Superman. And it's more than just simple wish fulfillment. Here's a guy who could have taken over the entire planet, probably by the age of 16, but he instead spends his life serving others rather than helping himself. And there's an implicit moral lesson there. Superman, Superman's rogues gallery, they get a bad rap too. But the way I look at it, a character of Superman's power level has to be challenged in non-physical ways at times. Not all the time, but sometimes. On that basis, my contention is that Superman's rogues gallery, while maybe not as dark as Batman's or as varied as Spider-Man's, it still works for what they're intended to do. Anyway. I've blabbered on long enough. Uh, what I'm going to do now is just play some promos, and then we're going to dive headlong into this week's Superman comics. So, sit tight.
My name is Grundy, born on a Monday. The following recording was taken from an NSA wiretap of a back to the men's taping. No names have been changed. Everyone is guilty. Do I need to mine, or am I good where I'm at? Oh, now you do. <laughs> if I have to mine, you have to yours. You might want to yours only if you do have it set to automatically because you don't want it to automatically because the thing never works right. Because what will happen is it will be used to you at a particular time, and then if you go out of that it scrambles to uh, a and it doesn't fast enough. So it's better to just set it up. Oh, okay. It, it really doesn't work well. So I checked right. uh, I checked my, uh, mm-hmm. well, my pro- okay. It definitely billed build, build me for the hotel for all three of us. Join Back to the Bins every week for goodness. Solomon Grundy hate voiceovers. Okay, I'm back now. And this, as I say, is the start of my cleverly titled series, Superman Begins. So, this is where I review the Superman origin stories and comic books that strike my fancy. So, the lead-off is a sort of bizarre combination, or at least it seems like one. So, I'm going to ask you to bear with me until the very end. So, first is The New Adventures of Superboy number 51. One of the last issues of that series, by the way. The cover date is March 1984. The cover price is a whopping 75 cents. And Mike's Amazing World of DC assures me that the sale date for this bad boy was December the 29th, 1983. The creative team is as follows. Bob Rosakis, writer. Frank Miller, cover artist. Jerry Serpy, colorist. Kurt Swan, Penciler of Part 1, Joe Gaiella, inker of Part 1, Kurt Schaffenberger, Penciler of Parts 2 and 3, Dan Adkins, inker of Part 2, and Frank Shiramonti, inker of Parts 2 and 3. You get all that? Anyhow, Part 1, which is entitled The Last Time I Saw Smallville, starts with Superboy flying over Smallville, carrying a pair of empty suitcases as a symbolic gesture that he's leaving town, mostly for the benefits of the residents of Smallville. However, he doesn't count on a massive throng of people assembled in the public park to spell out, Farewell, Superboy. We'll never forget you. Superboy finds it kind of funny that everybody knows he's leaving town, but nobody, including himself, has any idea where he's going yet. Still, Superboy is moved by the outpouring of support, and so he brings a jive-fucking-gantic cake to serve to all the residents who've shown up. He then spends time saying his goodbyes to everybody, most notably Lana Lang and Police Chief Parker. Superboy then remarks to himself that everybody is saving their slice of cake rather than eat it. Oddly enough, Superboy decides to do the same thing. Even more oddly, he loads his, cake, his piece of cake inside his empty suitcase in full view of the crowd, and nobody seems interested that his suitcase is empty. Oddest of all, Superboy apparently expects to just load the cake in his suitcase without making a huge mess inside. Anyhow, after dropping the suitcases off in a nearby cave, Superboy zips back to the Kent house just ahead of Lana, who's heading over to see how Clark is doing following the deaths and funerals of the Kents. Switching clothes, Clark takes a moment to realize just how odd it is to be home without Jonathan and Martha around somewhere. Lana and Clark chat a little bit about that particular pink elephant in the room, and then she invites Clark over to her house for dinner. Clark declines, saying he needs to figure out which college he wants to go to, which prompts Lana to tell him that she's attending Metropolis University. After Lana takes the hint and leaves, Superboy zips back to the cave where he hid his suitcases. He says that Clark has received scholarships from Gotham, Metropolis, and Hudson Universities, but he just can't make up his mind which one he should go to. So, his big master plan, he's figured he'll toss his cape into the air, and whichever direction it blows in, 
will determine the college he goes to. Incidentally, I really don't recommend this method for choosing colleges. I mean, that's how I made my choice, and it's why I ended up attending my local community college rather than accepting that full ride I was offered to MIT. Before Superboy can make the most asinine decision of his entire life, he notices that his piece of cake has been stolen. Mind you, the thief didn't take the suitcase. No, he simply pried the bastard open with a crowbar, stole the cake, and left the suitcases behind. The other suitcase appeared to be unharmed, which kind of makes no sense if you think about it. I mean, if you wandered into a cave, saw a pair of suitcases, pried one open, and found a piece of cake inside it, and decided to steal it, don't you think you'd crack open that other suitcase just to see what's inside? If you find a piece of cake in one suitcase, there's no telling what could be in that other suitcase. It could be gold doubloons, naked pictures of Lana Lang, grade-A heroin, who knows? Shit, we've all seen Pulp Fiction, right? Maybe one of those suitcases has Marcellus Wallace's soul in it or something. I mean... Whatever's in that second suitcase, it could be anything at that point, right? So what moron wouldn't at least take a look? But whatever. Nitwit Thief only opened one suitcase, took the slice of cake, and ran for it. So, rather than chalk it all up to bad luck, rather than steal somebody else's cake, rather than make another cake, rather than travel back in time and watch the thief steal the cake, rather than throw the entire miserable city of Smallville into the Atlantic Ocean, rather than preemptively blame Professor Potter for making a cake-stealing machine, rather than spin around in circles really fast for no apparent reason like an episode of Super Friends, Superboy instead decides to exercise his detective muscles by following the footprints out of the cave. He notices what appear to be signs of a kidnapping further up the trail, and so springs into action to investigate. I'm not making this shit up either. Superboy even thinks to himself that the trail is something that a novice Cub Scout could follow. Anyway, so Superboy springs into action to investigate. Like a novice Cub Scout, Superboy follows the footprints to a hunting lodge located in the abandoned hunting lodge district of Smallville and spies on his quarry. Using his X-ray vision, Superboy watches a couple of grown-ups smack a little kid around a little bit. Superboy waits just a little while to make sure the little bastard gets slapped around enough for stealing the cake before crashing through the wall. The boy's captors are apparently new to town because one of them tries shooting Superboy. Rather than just let the bullets bounce off his chest, Superboy uses super suction to pull the gun out of the thug's hand. Incidentally, I'm sure that super suction thing was a real hit when Superboy would hang out at Smallville High School keggers. Anyhow, Superboy then blows the gun into the thug's face and knocks him out. So, now it can truly be said that Superboy took down a bad guy, first by sucking and then by blowing. Superboy then binds the other thug's hands behind his back using a twisted fire poker. should be noted here that this thug doesn't even try to put up a fight as he seems to know Superboy's reputation. Which means he let Superboy beat the shit out of his friend, just for fun and games. My only guess is that somebody must have owed the other one a lot of money. Anyhow, Superboy then asks the kid who he is, what the hell he's doing out there, and most importantly of all, why the hell he ate Superboy's cake. The kid explains that his name is Michael Underwood, initials M-U, Michael Underwood, and uh, he and his rich old man had an argument about a phone bill or embezzlement or that brat stealing his dad's piece of cake or something. So the kid did the smart thing and ran away from home. Somewhere along the way, he got hungry, saw a cave, figured that was a good place for anybody to store spare, uh, perishable foods, and then helped himself to the cake. But that's about the time that those thugs, whose rich boy radar, I guess, was going off at that moment, kidnapped him and attempted to hold him for ransom. Now, I don't know about the rest of you, but no son of mine would ever be a cake thief, so rest assured, I wouldn't pay those kidnappers a fucking nickel. If you thought Superboy's process for selecting a college was weird, you should check out why he settled on Metropolis University. Between that little bastard kid wearing a Metro's jersey... 
the first two letters of his father's name being M.U., and the boy's own initials being M.U., Superboy believes that fate is calling him to Metropolis. Meanwhile, the rest of us are just glad that it wasn't F.U. But whatever. Part one ends with Clark Kent boarding a bus headed for Metropolis University. Part two, entitled... Where, oh, where has Superboy gone, which, by the way, sounds like the chorus of a 1950s doo-wop song, begins with Clark arriving at his dorm and meeting his roommate, Dave Hammond, as well as the lovable and precocious alcoholic of the dorm named Ducky Ginsburg, and finally, the drummer from Motley Crue. He says his name is Tommy Lee, so what am I supposed to think? Anyhow, Dave seems pretty impressed that Clark is from Smallville, and for that reason probably knows Superboy, while... Ducky's all big fucking deal about it. Then he goes off to get drunk and cry himself to sleep or something. Meanwhile, Clark says that there's no point in going to Smallville to meet Superboy anymore since he's moved away and hasn't been seen since. As fate and plot construction would have it, though, the very subject of Superboy's new hometown comes up after, La- after a little visit from Lana, as well as in John Q. Exposition's news update on the dorm TV. John Q. Exposition reports that Superboy hasn't been seen since the night he waterboarded some rich kid for stealing cake or something. And then he reports on bets people are making in Vegas on where Superboy is going to end up. Will it be New York? Washington, D.C.? Metropolis? Gotham City? Los Angeles? Detroit? New Orleans? Chicago? Miami? Or Boston? If I were Superboy, I'd stay enrolled as Clark at MetU but bet that Superboy will end up in Cleveland, and then collect big time when a Superboy robot starts performing rescues in the city of Cleveland. This could be why I don't have superpowers, in fact. Lana muses that it would be just twilight-rific if Superboy moved to Metropolis to be near her, watch her sleep, get drunk, slap her around and then blame her for it, and other romantic stuff. As a foreshadowing of his later life, Tommy Lee announces that sitting around watching television is just isn't balls out enough for him, so they're all going to go out for a night on the town. Ducky Ginsburg wakes from his drunken stupor, and they all board a subway to go sightseeing. However, the brake system on the, on the train fails, so Clark has no choice but to save everybody on the sly. What he does is, he punches through the fucking train door, drops trowel, and uses his ball sack of steel to somehow make the train stop or something. The group heads over to the, to the Metro building to use those shitty, borderline immovable binoculars that are bolted to the ground at the top of really tall buildings, just so they can look at Gotham City across the bay, the MetU campus, their dorm, and other things that make no fucking sense to look at from that kind of altitude. Meanwhile, Clark watches a guy on the ledge of a building. At first, he worries that it might be a potential suicide case, my guess would be that he's actually the, the cake thief's latest victim and he just can't deal with the ordeal of it all. But he soon realizes it's actually Perry White spying on some people. Incidentally, those of you who didn't like Perry White guest appearing on Smallville in 2003 can all read this issue from 1983 in Kiss My Ass. The people Perry is spying on, though, don't appreciate his eavesdropping, but rather than talk through their differences in calm and affirming tones of voice, they pull guns on him. Superboy secretly helps Perry escape those ruffians and hoodlums, but Perry isn't fooled for very long. He knows that he was actually rescued by Superboy who was operating in secret. Incidentally, those of you who didn't like Clark operating in secret as the blur on Smallville can all read this issue and kiss my ass. In any case, Perry becomes super suspicious that he must have had some super help from a certain super kid from a certain nearby small town. Incidentally, those of you who didn't like Smallville putting the town of Smallville so close to the city of Metropolis can all read this issue and kiss my ass. Part 3, cryptically titled, Perry White's Superboy Scoop, begins with Perry telling his editor George... I assume George Taylor, that Superboy is operating in Metropolis these days and he can prove it. Perry whips out a a white, misshapen object which he swears is one of the bullets the crook shot at him 
after it bounced off of Superboy. George says that it could be a crunched white bullet, or it could be a frozen glob of zebra spunk. So Perry should go out there and find some hard evidence, so to speak, so Perry vows to do just that. Meanwhile, Clark and his group of party animals are apparently still fucking sightseeing and are hanging out at Metropolis Stadium, even though the Metros aren't playing a game until the following week, and you would think a self-professed huge big baseball fan like Tommy Lee would have already known about that, but he didn't because the story needs the group to go to the stadium. After getting his balls busted by Lana for not liking baseball, Clark uses his x-ray vision to scan the stadium. Not because there's a reason for him to do so, but because the story needs him to scan the stadium. Clark sees another gang of ruffians and hoodlums carrying guns around in one of the locker rooms. Clark hears the ruffians and hoodlums from Metropolis brag that they're going to show the scoundrels and miscreants from Gotham City what for. Clark decides he has another job to do as the Blur. I mean Superboy. The Superboy. The group returns to Met U, and Lana bitches and whines about not knowing where Superboy is these days, but she sure would love for him to take her to the Frosh Hop, whatever the fuck that is. Probably some secret opium den she just discovered across the street from the campus. Anyway, Clark offers to take her, but Lana busts his balls some more. But it's not like Lana has stolen any cake that we know about, so Clark doesn't waterboard her. Instead, they all go their separate ways for the evening. Later that night, the ruffians and hoodlums from Metropolis meet up with the scoundrels and miscreants from Gotham City in the baseball field. Because if I was involved in a life of organized crime, I'd definitely want to meet in a high-profile place like a major sports stadium. Unbeknownst to them, Superboy is watching from the shadows. Unbeknownst to everyone, Perry White is also hiding in the stands, watching from the shadows, and hoping to get proof that Superboy has moved to Metropolis. With all these people watching shit from the shadows, you know, it, it kind of seems like this comic could have been published in the 90s or something. Anyway. Before too long, everybody starts acting like hooligans, what with the ruffians and the hoodlums and the scoundrels and the miscreants, all opening fire on each other. And n none of their bullets are hitting their targets, though, because... Superboy is hovering above them, in the shadows, using his super breath to suck the bullets away from everyone. Then Superboy zooms in at super speed and knocks everybody out. Incidentally, those of you who didn't like Clark punching regular humans in the face on Smallville can all read this issue and kiss my ass. Perry White snaps photos of Superboy doing all this stuff, and after the ruffians, hoodlums, scoundrels, and miscreants have all been knocked out, Perry calls Superboy out and says he knows he's behind all this. We cut to a scene in George's office where Perry storms in with what he assures us is the story of the year. I questioned that, so I decided to check it out. I have since reached the scientifically certain conclusion that if Superboy was a real person, and if this story took place in 1983 which is the year in which this issue was published, yeah, it probably would have been the biggest story of the year. Because fuck all else happened that year. The problem, though, is that this story didn't take place in 1983. It would have taken place in 1968. That means we're supposed to believe that some kid, moving from a small town to a nearby city, is bigger news than the Vietnam War's Battle of Lima Site 85, Lyndon Johnson announcing he won't seek re-election, the assassination of Martin Luther King, the shooting of Andy Warhol, the assassination of Robert Kennedy, the wedding of Jackie Kennedy and Aristotle Onassis, the presidential election wherein Richard Nixon defeated Hubert Humphrey, Yale University announcing it will begin admitting women, Elvis Presley's historic 1968 comeback TV special, communism coming to North Vietnam, or the death of Helen Keller. Yeah, sounds legit. In any event... George demands proof, which is Superboy's cue to fly in through the conveniently open window, and then he invites George to pinch him, Superboy, to show that this isn't just a dream. The Daily Planet's headline the next day proclaims that Metropolis has Superboy, and cake thieves everywhere decide to try their luck in Gotham City. I guess I should start by saying that, all mockery aside, 
I really did enjoy this issue. It plays to what I think is a major strength the pre-crisis Superman has in emphasizing just how crucial Jonathan and Martha are to Clark and how much his time in Smallville meant to him. I'm sure. This story is a little goofy, but it's all in good fun. And that's the hallmark of DC around this era. A lot of their books simply wanted to tell fun superhero stories. Now, I was barely out of diapers when this issue came out, so I can't claim any particular nostalgia for this, for this era. But at the same time, <clears throat> I can't really tell you that I prefer modern comics to this either. No matter how much I picked on this comic, I did it out of love. I truly enjoyed it. Sure, parts of the plot didn't completely add up, and I made sure to point those out as we went along, but that's part of the charm. The Superman family of comics under Julius Schwartz were more plot-driven than character-driven, so as long as something exciting happened every couple of pages, it was assumed that everything would all work out in the end. Still, there are some interesting nuances to the writing. Intentionally or not, Rosakis wrote the book in a way that somewhat riffed on what comics were like back in 1968. Not completely, but parts of the dialogue were just hammy enough to sound like they might have originally come from some late Silver Age DC comic. To me, it takes a special talent to be able to riff on a completely different era of comics like Rosakis did, but to do it in a way that doesn't distract from the story at hand. So, props to Rosakis. I thought he, he did a great job. And in general, I had a ball with this issue. Now, you're probably asking, but Magnus, but Magnus, what does any of this have to do with Clark becoming Superman? My answer to that is, not a damn thing. But this is set up for what we'll be talking about next. I want you guys to look at the time measuring thingy on your iPod or iTunes or iPhone or Winamp or whatever you've got. Now I want you to realize that everything that has been said and done up to this point is actually set up for the main attraction, which we haven't even gotten to yet. So, I'm going to play some promos and we'll be right back. You've decided to go to a nearby restaurant. You ask the hostess to seat you in a booth. As you sit, you notice an animated conversation among the four seated behind you. They're talking about Star Wars and Doctor Who and something called the Laugh Olympics. These are the people you used to pants in high school. And yet, you cannot help listening. Unable to tear your ears away, you realize you've just been sucked into the Dinner for Geeks. Dinner for Geeks, weekly at twotruefreaks.com. And I'm back, continuing the first episode of my Superman Begins miniseries. Now, you all might be wondering why it is that I just spent half an hour talking about the new adventures of Superboy number 51 if it has nothing to do with the subject at hand. So, guess I should probably explain that. The reason for that is because the new adventures of Superboy number 51 was a sort of collected reprint of several Superboy the in-between years backup stories that ran in a bunch of other comics before this. 
a big chunk of them were reprinted in, as I say, New Adventures of Superboy number 51, kind of to serve as a zero issue for Superman, The Secret Years. If you read New Adventures of Superboy number 51 and then immediately went into Superman, The Secret Years, there really isn't a whole lot else that you'd need to know. But for background, this entire thing was sort of a pet project of Bob Rosakis. He reasoned that, by and large, Superboy operating in Smallville was pretty well known, and Superman operating in Metropolis was also pretty well known. But there had to have been a transition between those two, and that hadn't been documented well at all. So, Rosakis envisioned a 12-issue a maxi series to explain just how Superboy evolved and became Superman while he was in college. What experiences did he have? Who did he meet? How did he make that transition? All of that and more made Rizakis think that there was a lot of story potential here, but evidently the powers that were at DC had a slightly different opinion since they would only approve a four-issue miniseries for Rizakis to tell his tale. Now, if that sounds kind of harsh, remember that DC was gearing up for Crisis on Infinite Earths at that moment. Apart from that, the second issue includes an editorial by uh, Dick Giordano where he discusses his meetings with Alan Moore about the project that would become Watchmen, and also receiving Frank Miller's first script for what would become The Dark Knight Returns. In fact, Watchmen is actually mentioned by name while you... You have to read between the lines with Dark Knight Returns, but I mean, come on, what the fuck else could it be? So, and then on top of all that, I think it was generally known at DC that pretty soon they were going to reboot Superman. I don't know how far along John Byrne might have been with developing his proposal, or hell, I don't, know, I don't even know if he was even in the picture yet, but... I do think DC had a very clear idea that this version of Superman's days were basically numbered. So, if anything, it's actually kind of a minor, a minor miracle that Superman The Secret Years exists at all. But anyway, enough preamble. This is where shit gets real. Superman The Secret Years. Writer, Bob Rosakis. Penciler, Kurt Swan. Inker, Kurt Schaffenberger, colorist, Tom Zayuko, letterer, John Costanza, cover artist, Frank Miller, editor, Julius Schwartz. In Superman, The Secret Years, number one, entitled Dreams and Schemes and Feeling Proud, we first see Lex Luthor faking a suicide attempt and then escaping from reform school in a very Silver Agey kind of way. Meanwhile, at Metropolis University, Clark has a nightmare that he's too slow and ineffectual to save an airplane from two fighter jets. In his dream, the fighter jet pilots are revealed to be Jonathan and Martha Kent, who talk shit to Superboy about he's, how he's a complete failure, a total fuck-up, and everything else. Obviously, Clark is haunted by his inability to save his parents. We then learn that this isn't the first time that he's had this kind of nightmare. Clark updates his diary about all this, but is interrupted by... Uh, well, first by his alcoholic roommate, Ducky, who's just been dumped by his girlfriend, and then by John Q. Exposition's news update, announcing that Lex Luthor has once again escaped from his revolving door of a, of a uh, reform school. Superboy is immediately on the case, but Lex is a few steps ahead of him, and manages to get away without a trace. Later, back at Met U, a boy called Billy Kramer invites himself to Clark's dorm, saying he's from Smallville too, and one of his teachers from Smallville High said he should look up Clark and Lana when he gets to when he gets to college. It's really not much of a conversation though, because Billy Kramer is probably the most socially retarded person who's ever lived. He is, in fact, everything that Clark pretends to be. Later, Superboy swoops in on the aftermath of a burglary at a, at a uh, an electronics shop. It becomes clear that Lex Luthor is the guilty party, but before Superboy can make any progress in searching for him, he's interrupted by Ducky, his drunken roommate, careening around the streets of downtown Metropolis. Ducky's royally shit-faced and has no, biz no business driving a car at that moment, so Superboy decides to teach him a lesson. 
swoops underneath Ducky's car and gives him an airborne tour of Metropolis. After it's over, Ducky says he's learned his lesson, and then says he and Superboy should celebrate by having a beer. Superboy declines and flies off, while Ducky mutters that Superboy should just go away. Like his ex-girlfriend, his parents, his dog, his garbage man, his imaginary friend, and everybody else. A week after that, Clark runs into Billy Kramer on campus. Billy acts like a socially retarded moron, and so he and Clark go their separate ways. Later on, Clark is cheerleading. I shall repeat that. Clark is cheerleading during an inter-dorm football game where he gets roped into playing when Steve Power, an asshole player from the other team, injures another player. Clark's on a roll and figures it's time to teach Steve Power a lesson too, so he makes Steve look like a complete asswipe on the football field. Later, Superboy gets called in on another case. Someone's hacked into a bank and robbed them of $48,000. Superboy follows the trail back to Lex Luthor, who's been routing money into his account, and then going into the bank to withdraw it. Lex expects to go back to reform school, but Superman tells him that, as he's 21 now, instead he's going to be going to a federal pound-me-in-the-ass prison. Later, it's parent visit day in Clark's dorm building, the concept of which should be self-explanatory. And if it's not, please turn off your computer and never turn it back on. Billy Kramer's parents swing by, and it comes out that Billy's been feeding them a ton of bullshit about what close friends he and Clark are. But... Clark rolls with it because the alternative is telling Mr. and Mrs. Kramer that Billy is a deeply disturbed young man in desperate need of years of professional help. Hell, he probably spent most of high school crucifying rabbits and tormenting kittens, the sick fuck. Actually, I made that stuff up, but Billy is totally socially inept. All this parent stuff, though, is just too much for Clark, so he flies back to Smallville to visit Jonathan and Martha's graves. He then decides that's not enough, so he flies back through time to kind of relive his past when he, Jonathan, and Martha all lived together and were just a happy family. The rules of time travel in the DCU at this time meant traveling back through time turned the traveler into an invisible phantom, so this tells us it's not possible to alter history. Superboy watches versions of himself, Jonathan, and Martha have dinner and just shoot the shit with each other before returning back to his own time. It's chosen a bad moment to do it, though, as he arrives on the scene of a horrible car crash. Someone's car is slammed into a tree. The cops report that the driver's legs have been crushed and will probably be useless for the rest of, uh, for the rest of his life, and there's not much soup, uh, that Superboy can do about it now. If only he'd gotten there five minutes earlier. Superboy pries open the driver's door and finds that it's Ducky, his alcoholic roommate, who'd been out drunk driving again. In the second issue, entitled Reach Out and Touch, Billy moves into Clark's dorm suite now that Ducky's rolled out. Clark's other roommates, mostly Dave Hammond, bust Billy's balls about following Clark around all the time. However, Clark's not home, and we find that Superboy is searching the Bermuda Triangle for a missing cruise ship, even though he hears pieces of a radio transmission, transmission warning nobody to come looking. Back at the dorm, Dave is helping move Tommy's stuff into his own room as he doesn't want to share a room with Billy. Oh yeah, they're great friends. Meanwhile, Superboy is busy testifying at Lex Luthor's trial. After the judge sentences Lex to ten years in a pound-me-in-the-ass prison, Lex tells Superboy that they're both outcasts. Superboy just hasn't realized it yet. Next day, Billy Kramer overhears Steve Power talk about sabotaging Clark's chemistry experiment as payback for that football embarrassment from the last issue. Billy's too big a fuck-up, though, so he doesn't save Clark from the jerry-rigged experiment, and a big mess gets made. Still, Billy and Clark finally do start bonding, so at least there's that. Later, Met You experiences a major power outage, so Superboy puts it right. The next day, Lori Lamaris loses control of her wheelchair because women can't drive and really can't do anything, right? So it's a good thing a man was around to help her. Lori appeared to, ha to help invent an excuse to cover for Clark using his powers openly. Later that night, Clark has another nightmare. This time, he's unable to save Ducky from being pulled into the ground by Jarrell and Lara. Later on, Billy crashes Lori and Clark's date. He was hoping to set up a double date with himself, that hooker he probably hired to come with him, Lori and Clark, but Superboy is needed because shit just keeps disappearing in the Bermuda Triangle, so Clark has to bow out early. Once again, though, 
Superboy can't find jack fucking shit in the Bermuda Triangle, so he loses his temper and shouts, Row, damn it. Where in the flying fuck is everybody? Or it was something along those lines. However, Superboy gets an unintentional assist from Billy Kramer when Clark returns to the dorm and happens upon uh, everyone searching for Dave's missing fraternity ring. Superboy follows the exact same course as the missing planes and cruise liners that have gone through the Bermuda Triangle and ends up finding a, a tear in reality which leads him to what kind of seems to be a, a parallel universe with a pretty much uninhabited Earth apart from the missing travelers and search parties. The missing people are busy playing Gilligan's Island and don't actually want to come back to the real world. Rather than upset their families with their sudden return after years of being missing and likely declared dead, they're willing to just let the past be the past. For whatever reason, that inspires Superboy to attempt to do the same thing, so he flies back home and reveals to Billy Kramer that Clark and Superboy are one and the same. The third issue, entitled Terminus, begins with Clark struggling to find words to explain what the fuck had happened to him earlier that day, but he just can't. He reflects on the course of events and how it all began with giving Billy Kramer a whistle which he could use to summon Superboy in the event of an emergency, and this is a whistle that only Superboy can hear. The whistle ends up coming in handy as Billy is able to call Superboy to several emergencies he might otherwise have missed out on. As Clark reflects that it's made life easier having a blonde guy hanging around who knows his secret identity, Pete Ross shows up for an unexpected visit. Pete and Billy don't really get along all that well, but there is a kind of neat moment where Billy and Pete both realize that Clark's just spotted an emergency for Superboy to deal with, so they both spill shit all over him to give him an excuse to leave. Superboy finds a firecracker factory is burning up, but he manages to halt the worst of the damage. Later, Clark is on another date with Lori Lamaris, and he proposes to her. But he tells her that she should know everything about him first, and so he starts to reveal that he's Superboy. Oh, now, this, this is actually kind of interesting. Clark wants the chick he's in love with to know his secret before expecting an answer either way about marrying him. Huh. Quick, someone called Jerry Ordway. But anyway, Lori interrupts him, though, and tells him she already knows he's Superboy because, hey, telepathy's a bitch. That's the bad news. The really bad news is that she can't marry him. And the even worse news is that their date's over because it's almost 8 o'clock and she's always home again by 8 o'clock. Clark starts going back to his dorm but changes his mind while riding the elevator. The elevator suddenly changing direction foils another trap that Steve Power was setting, but Clark doesn't even notice. Clark and Billy end up having an, an argument because Billy doesn't understand that even good friends have fucking boundaries with each other, so Clark loses his temper and kicks Billy out of the room. After that, Clark makes up his mind to have it out with Lori about all this silliness, but he gets interrupted by Billy and that motherfucking whistle of his. Billy summoned them so they could talk about all of this stuff, but... Superboy loses his temper again and flies off. Superboy meets up with Lori and tries to club her over the head and drag her back to his cave, but they're interrupted by a bursting dam. Lori says that she can help, and Superboy notices that she's a mermaid. And then he says he subconsciously knew that all along. The next time I'm on a date with some chick and she wants to go back to her place early in the evening, you think I should assume she's a mermaid too? I wonder how that'd play out. <sighs> what if? Lori and Superboy made for a pretty effective rescue team, though. And after that's done, Lori breaks it down for Superboy. She says she's from Atlantis, and they periodically send scouts to the surface world to check shit out and just see what's going on. Lori said it was her turn to do it this time, and her mission is pretty much over now. She says she loves them, but they can't get married. Superboy and Lori say their goodbyes, and from there, Clark begins nursing a broken heart. Before he can wallow in self-pity too much, though, John Q. Exposition's news update reports a tsunami in the South Pacific, and there's no hope of rescuing anybody. It's all useless. There's no hope in the world. Everything sucks. The planet's probably going to be destroyed next week. The cosmos is probably going to forget about the Earth the day after that, and shortly, 
the entire universe and all creation will be swallowed up in a spiral of entropy and chaos, so we should all just kill ourselves now and get it over with because it's all completely useless. While John Q. Exposition is wheeled away to get professional help, Superboy swoops into action and zooms over to the South Pacific to deal with the tsunami. While he's there, though, he hears Billy's whistle summons because Billy's trapped in a building that's caught on fire and desperately needs help. But Superboy's got his hands full with the tsunami problem and he has no choice but to watch and listen to Billy die. Superboy is more depressed than an emo band at a self-help conference about it and takes Billy's death pretty badly. The fourth issue, entitled Beyond Terminus, starts with a bunch of newspaper headlines informing us that Superboy must have become an MSNBC news personality or something because nobody's seen him lately. Oh, and Lex Luthor has escaped from prison, too. At the Daily Planet, George announces that he'll be retiring soon, so if Perry can figure out just what in Rao's name happened to Superboy, it'll be a sure thing he'll become the new editor-in-chief. Meanwhile, Superboy is, a, is away and waxing nostalgic with a set of statues of Mr., Mrs., and Lana Lang, Jonathan, Martha, and Clark Kent, Billy Kramer, and Pete Ross. Because this is the pre-crisis, so there have to be statues of even the weirdest, most unnecessary, and creepy things. Superboy's thinking to himself that Smallville represents the good old days, and then suddenly loses his temper, shouts at the Clark statue that he sucks, he can't do anything right, everything's his fault, and then he smashes the statue to bits and pieces and bits. Freud would have a field day with that, I'm sure. Meanwhile, Perry White and Inspector Henderson are trying to figure out where on Rao's Green Earth Superboy might be. Perry has Billy Kramer's old whistle and says he'll keep searching. Meanwhile, we find out that Lex Luthor has been busy launching a bunch of satellites and shit into orbit. Meanwhile, meanwhile, we find out that Superboy has been hiding out in the Bermuda Triangle dimension this whole time, so he can basically just be left the fuck alone. Meanwhile, 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 it's come to light that the satellites have been launched are all Lex Luthor's doing. Lex himself co-ops public broadcasts to challenge Superboy to a one-on-one -on -one battle with the whole world watching. If he doesn't answer the challenge, Lex will use the satellites he's launched to destroy all life on Earth. As all that's going on, Superboy is having another nightmare where Jonathan and Martha are beating the piss out of Jarrell and Lara. After a while, though, they turn on Clark for his failure to rescue them. Of all people, though, Billy shows up to put the mess to bed. He said that they should all be happy that Superboy fights for a greater good, and their great boys become a great man. So they should all just get off his Kryptonian ball sack about it. Billy then banishes the parents with a blow off his whistle. Superboy wakes up and hears the real whistle blowing, so he returns to the real world and finds that Perry has summoned him. Perry gives him the lowdown on Lex Luthor, so Superboy swoops off to deal with it. Superboy and Lex duke it out. Lex has somehow become as powerful as Superboy, and it comes out that the satellites circling the globe are broadcasting energy beams which give Lex his powers. So Superboy and Lex take turns beating the fuck out of each other, but Lex ends up screwing it all up for himself when Superboy pretends to be dead, and so Lex destroys the satellites. On his way into custody, Lex says that he'll acknowledge to the world that he was defeated by Superboy, but he gets corrected. Not Superboy anymore. Superman. Later, Superman meets Perry atop the Daily Planet building. Perry is getting that promotion to editor-in-chief after all, and thanks Superman for it. Before leaving, Perry suggests that Superman adopt a civilian identity to live among people and understand human nature. Superman says that he'll think about that while he's balancing Perry's wife around in bed, and then he flies off. Later at Met U, Clark sees another out-of-control wheel wheelchair, but this time it ends up being Ducky. They catch up a little bit, and Ducky said that he's giving up his drinking ways. Later, it's once again parent visit day, and Clark meets Tommy Lee's parents, and it goes great until Mr. Lee pisses Clark off when he invites Clark and his parents to dinner. Superman then flies back through time and again watches his own past. It's high school graduation and Jonathan is giving Clark some real man-to-man -man advice. Jonathan says, Even with your incredible powers, Clark, blah blah blah, you can direct your future, but you can't change your past. 
Superman realizes that Jonathan's words are as valid as ever, and so he gives up constantly revisiting his life in Smallville and then attends his own graduation at MetU. Later, Clark heads to the Daily Planet to interview for a job with Perry White, the new editor-in-chief, and Perry's all, Fuck it, I'll hire you. Welcome to the greatest, most prestigious newspaper in the world, you rookie directly out of journalism school. The end. Okay, so there's something of a pink elephant in the room here, so I should probably deal with that up front. This series was done in the flexographic printing process. So, some of it looks great, and some of it looks like real dog shit. Colors are misaligned or do weird fade-in, fade-out things. Other times there are sort of these sort of holes in the colors, and the short version is that flexographic just wasn't ready for prime time. Now, in an editorial on the subject, in issue 3, Dick Giordano talks a lot about flexographic and how awesome it's going to be, how it'll help to DC, uh, how it'll help DC appeal to more sophisticated audiences and all that shit. Truth is, flexographic was pretty much a crashing failure across the board, and so it was mothballed within a year. Now, I've read all kinds of theories about the problem. Colorists wouldn't tone down their color codes. The paper used for flexographic was substandard. The flexographic process itself just had kinks that needed to be sussed out and would have been if DC had stuck to it. Everything under the sun, basically, has been suggested. Now, I don't know. I don't care. I wasn't around for this stuff. All I can tell you is that when it lo- is that when it worked well, I think the printing looked great. When it didn't work well, the printing looked like dog shit. That's about as nice as I can put it. So, as to the story itself, it's kind of shocking actually how much this resembles Smallville. The New Adventures of Super of uh, Superboy number 51 showed Clark briefly operating in secret kind of like the blur from Smallville, but the Secret Years miniseries, in some ways it was sort of a parallel to Smallville in that it showed comic book Superboy struggling a lot with the same basic issues as Clark from Smallville. Now, the big issue that Clark has to overcome in both stories is reconciliation with himself regarding his past and accepting the limitations of his powers, and most of all, forgiving himself for his failures. What he has to realize in each of these stories is that his powers are a gift. He can and should use them to help others, but he can't torture himself about his inability to rescue everybody all the time. He can't truly move on until he makes peace with his limitations and with his past. As with Clark on Smallville... This realization is the key for Superboy to become Superman. Now, Rosakis gets a lot of emotion and mileage out of Superboy's character arc in this miniseries. I can see why he wanted to do a 12-issue maxi-series about it, but I think DC made the right call in cutting it down to four issues. Still, Rosakis added a lot of nice flourishes. The miniseries never became self-aware or a parody or anything like that, but there are just a few little moments where longtime Superman fans will be in on the joke. For example, it's never outright said that Pete Ross knows that Clark is Superboy. There's not yet another flashback to the time Pete and Clark were camping in a forest, Brokeback Mountain style, when Clark unwittingly revealed his secret to Pete. If you know, you know. And that's it. Or here's another one. In the fourth issue, there's a bit where Perry White thinks about the possibility of becoming editor of the Daily Planet and how that'll probably make his wife Alice the happiest wife in the world. When, at about that time in the regular Superman titles, Perry and Alice were having pretty serious uh, marital problems because Perry, let's face it, is a workaholic. As I say, never becomes too too obvious or glaring. If you see it, you see it, but 
The story never pauses to say, Hey, look at us! Aren't we so ironic? And it's just... It was just refreshing to read something like that. So... At the same time, though, Rosakis never forgets that this is essentially a Silver Age throwback. So, occasionally, Superboy's going to do something insane, like lift an entire island to move it out of the path of a tsunami. Rosakis always seemed to know just how far to push it, though. Now, I've heard Bob Rosakis be called a quote-unquote workman, as far as writing is concerned. Now... Maybe it's just me, but I've always thought that was kind of pejorative. To me, he's a writer who seems to intuitively understand how to tell stories and what tone he should use to best facilitate the storytelling, and then he just keeps it consistent throughout. In fact, I dare say he's somewhat underrated in that respect. Anyway, as to the art... Then you get into the Kurt Swan and Kurt Schaffenberger stuff. Schaffenberger was the preeminent Superboy artist of his time, while Swan was the preeminent Superman artist of his time, and so it made sense to pair them together for the story where Superboy becomes Superman. Now, I think there's something to the idea of depicting Schaffenberger's Superboy visibly becoming Swan's Superman and then showing the transformation from one to the other in the art. But that didn't seem to be the intent of the art here. The idea seems to have been to give Kurt Swan's pencils a Kurt Schaffenberger touch. The art in this miniseries really is a blending together of their two styles as opposed to a transition from one character to another. Now, I'm okay with the art as it is, when Flexographic didn't fuck it all up anyway, but I kind of wish they'd gone more with the transition thing. This is more for artistic effect than a question of enjoying or not enjoying the final product. As I say, I like the art a lot. I just see a lot of untapped potential to it, so... I think that's about enough of that. So I'm going to play a couple of promos. I'll be right back. Sit tight. after the rise of the Comics Code Authority. The Bronze Age was a dream given form. Its goal? To portray superheroes in a way that was socially relevant by tackling real-world issues. It's a catch-all, a place to explore monsters, demons, gunslingers, gods, and superheroes alike. Writers and artists wrapped in house styles of sophisticated realism, creating the stuff of legends. There is no assurance of quality, but it's our last best hope for comic books. This is a retrospective of the true golden age. The year is 1970. The name of the podcast, Uncovering the Bronze Age. Tune into our feed for regular content at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com. Also home to the Quarterbin Podcast and the Shortbox Showcase. You like cheap comic books, right? Well, I'm Professor Allen. And I talk about cheap comic books on the Quarterbin Podcast. In every episode, I'll dissect a single comic from my collection, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for the issue. Forget about $4 new comics that you can read in four minutes, or crossover events that can cost 100 bucks to collect. Join me in the Quarterbin, where even bad comics are a bargain, and good ones are a steal. The Quarterbin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. Visit us 
at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search Relatively Geeky or Quarterbin Podcast in iTunes. I guarantee it'll be worth every penny. Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. You can find the home for Trentus Magnus, Punch's Reality, at magnus.libson.com. You can also find it on Facebook, just by searching for Trentus Magnus, Punch's Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners, and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S... M-A-G-N-U-S You can email me and my parole officer at trentusmagnus at gmail.com Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind and that's a promise If you enjoyed the show review it in iTunes If you didn't enjoy the show review it in iTunes do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promo can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promo section. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is copyright Magnus Media Enterprises Limited, Wisconsin Falls, California. Mm-hmm.